Kenapa sih kita nggak jadi ke Bali? Sekarang malah ke tempat yang di map saja nggak ada. Ini Pak Pandi. Dia yang ngegedein kita di panti asuhan ini. Kalian udah lama di sini? Wow, asik ya tempatnya. Dulu di sini ada seorang pengurus panti namanya Ibu Mira. Terus Ibu Mira dikurung di kamar ini. Ibu Mira gedor-gedor pintu ini. Gedor pintu pakai kepala sampai kepala pecah. Dia nyerang kita dengan ibu hitam. Buka, buka. What the hell is going on here? Hati. Tarik dari sini, pak. everybody welcome to the latest episode of fresh cuts i am mike and joining me as always it's mr venom how are you doing greetings and salutations trypophobia sufferers if you don't know what the hell i'm talking about stay tuned all will be explained yeah mike i'm doing pretty good how you doing i am doing well um we are a month into 2021 it's moving fast movies coming out to talk about luckily we have one tonight that i'm thinking that uh, everyone's gonna enjoy but you really never know these days oh yeah it's just it's just a hunch of mine but uh we'll find out soon also joining is don how are you doing don yeah doing good guys uh just you know glad to finally be away from january and all of that mess and let's get on with the rest yeah, January kind of felt like a 2020 extension, really. February is when it all turns around, guys, right? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's what they're saying. Yeah, 20, when I get... January was the epilogue. Let's start 2021 in February. I'm with that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, maybe our February is going to start off really well with a little movie called The Queen of Black Magic. Um, let's see. Ratu Ilmu Hitam is probably not the correct nice pronunciation. No, that is it. That, that's Pretty actually close, what yeah. it is. Yeah, that's <laughs> actually it. Yeah, all right. Well, I, I, luckily, yeah, the three words kind of, I, I just like pronounced them as they looked in, spelled in English. So I was like, hopefully. But uh, this is an Indonesian movie. Everyone should recognize the writer, Joko Anwar. Um, what Satan slaves right was what he Impetigor Impetigor yeah Impetigor yes so some along with a slew of other great movies mm-hmm. right so 
as far as I'm concerned, he's on a little bit of a streak because uh, I've enjoyed what I've seen um, from him so far. So let's see if we got another one in the bag. IMDb synopsis. Well, shouldn't we actually credit the true director? Because um, the way that sounds, Joko's the director, but he's not. Oh, yeah. He's the writer. Director. Yeah, the actual. Yeah, the director's uh, Kimo Stambowell, who most people will recognize as the other half of the Mo brothers with uh, Timo Jajan. So just want to make sure we clarify that because, yeah, you made it sound like Joko was the writer-director, but yeah, he's just the writer. Mm-hmm. He is the writer. That's correct. All right, so IMDb synopsis. Families were terrorized at the orphanage. Someone wants them dead. Apparently with black magic, that is very deadly. And I'm just going to cut it off there because I don't want to yeah. read too much. Three complete <laughs> Any- sentences for the description. What the hell? Yeah, anytime there's a paragraph, I get a little afraid that it's going to get to say too much. So, uh. <laughs> Queen of Black Magic, general thoughts time. Venom, you're up first. What did you think? Well, as far as fresh cuts and Joko Arnoir goes, we are batting three for three. Yes, I absolutely enjoyed this movie. I will say that I maybe didn't enjoy it as much as Satan Slaves and Impetigor. There's just a something about Anwar's filmmaking that just adds that little bit of panache to his movies. And not to say that Kimo is, you know, an unskilled filmmaker by any stretch. There's still some really impressive stuff done in this movie some pretty good effects um you know the score is really good i like the score i love the opening theme by indonesian radiohead <laughs> I, I just i couldn't get over that song it literally sounded like a radiohead <laughs> song but with an indonesian singer over it I yeah really loved it <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, a nice little story, really nice pace. You don't have to wait a long time for stuff to start happening pretty much as soon as all the families arrive at the orphanage, you know, paranormal, supernatural things start happening pretty much their first night there. So that's nice. You know, a lot, a lot like some of the great, um, Asian horror that we've got over the last couple of years, stuff like, you know, metamorphosis and whatnot, where you don't really have to wait for a lot. Um, before the action starts. You don't have to wade through a lot of character development. Uh, In all honesty, we get very little character development in this movie, which I've heard some people complaining about. I myself have no problem with it. I mean, we get, we basically get like a five minute car ride at the beginning of the movie with the family, with the first family driving to the orphanage. And honestly, that's all the character development I need. That's all I need to know about the family at that point. Obviously their interactions are going to, their interactions as the movie moves along is going to dictate whether you like this character or don't like this character. So any character that you might be talking about anyway, but um, yeah, I really did like the story structure here. I, you know, I, I love the, once again, you know, another Indonesian horror film kind of set out in the sticks, you know, out in the woods, far away from major cities, um, this one didn't feel nearly as isolated as Impetigor did, though. Um, even though they don't really show anything around the orphanage other than forest and one road leading to it. But it, it just something about the way that Joko um, shoots his films, he gets that sense of isolation in there. Um, you know, that, that Kimo hasn't quite nailed yet, but... Um, yeah, enjoyed the film, enjoyed the setting, um, had no problem with any of the characters, their characterization, their performances. It all worked for me. 
Um, the villain was cool. You know, once we got the reveal of who the actual pro, uh, antagonist of the film is, I thought it was a nice little reveal. Um, you know, th this movie isn't going to, like, change the world by any stretch. We get a lot of tropes that we've seen before, witchcraft, curses, things like that. Um, but it's just, it's all done really, really well, nice and solid. Um, like I said, uh, for people who are into um, faster, almost breakneck pace, this is definitely more a movie for you. You don't have to wade through a lot of character development. Um, I enjoyed the ending, if we can call it an ending, since obviously with a lot of these horror movies, they always have that question mark at the end. Is this actually the end or not? But ultimately, I like the culmination of this story. Um, and yeah, I don't really have a whole lot of complaints. Um, there's As we go through the spoiler section and the walkthrough, there's going to be a couple of scenes that I pinpoint that I really liked um, the filmmaking aspects of it, be it the score that was playing, the effects, or just like uh, the, the performances by the actors. So um, yeah, overall, I'm going to say I really enjoyed this one. This is a strong recommend from me. Once again, it's available on Shutter. So if you have access to a Shutter account, there's no reason whatsoever you shouldn't be watching this one. Again, it is in uh, Indonesian, so you know you're dealing with subtitles, which I know a lot of people have aversions to. But ultimately, if you can handle the subtitles and you know you can handle the pace, and there's a lot of characters in this movie. On first watch, I I, I was losing track of who was who, like names. I mean, um, by the by the end of the second watch, I, I'm solidly. I'm comfortable with all the names, their relationships, everything else. But yeah, the first time you watch it, especially because it's names that we're not used to in America, I think the most, uh, you know, American English name in the whole movie is Jeffrey. Um, and Anton, actually. So Anton and Jeffrey, we got an Eva in there. So yeah, but for the most part, you've got like, you know, Haki, uh, Hanif, Nadia, Dina, Maman, you know, just diff different names like that. So um, you might get a little confused with the, you know, amount of characters in there, but, you know, keep with it. It's a great story, cool climax, pretty nice and violent climax, too. I mean, the whole third act is nice and juicy, even though there's not a whole lot of on-screen death in this film. Uh, a lot of torturous scenes to watch, you know, some good effects, blah, blah, blah. So I'm going to go ahead and shut up now because I've already gotten long-winded, but yeah. Um, great movie, really enjoy it. Probably my favorite of 2021 thus far. All right, Don, what did you think of Queen of Black Magic? I completely agree with almost everything Venom said, um, even down to losing track of who the characters were, because that was one of the problems of mine, especially with uh, five or six different uh, couples coming together. You know, you, you have them coming with their with their own kids. So you, you're kind of losing who's who, in a sense. Other than that, um, I'm in complete agreement, um, almost to the um, even liking this more than he did. Um, it actually even made my top 10 of 2020, because I actually saw it uh, before you guys did. Mm -hmm. um, I got an early access screener. So for me, I actually put this on my best of 2020 list, and more than likely this will be on the Fresh Cuts best of 2021 that we record in january of next year so uh be on the lookout for that one um if that should be any indication yes i'm probably on board um the body horror elements in this are fantastic the mm -hmm. special effects work is amazing 
I absolutely agree with him on the pacing. I am not bored at this thing for a second. This is a vicious wild ride that just starts and never stops. And I am completely on board with something like that. The jump scares are fantastic. Um, I, I do agree that there is one small little section of the film that it does kind of drag down when it's all about every getting all of the reveals out. Because that happens a little bit later into the film than I usually like, where it's all about discovering where each of the the participants involved come from, you know, learning about their history and and where they all of their involvements with the orphanage, who's actually responsible and for what, which it kind of makes it a little bit of a drag at that point. You know, it's a little bit later than I'd like, but splitting hairs this is an absolute fantastic film um definitely something that you're if you're into that brutal edge of asian horror that's coming out recently this is definitely one to check out um i i even really want to get into the original based on how fun this one was because mm-hmm. if it's anything like this i'm definitely on board but yeah uh general thoughts uh Easily top 10 of 2021, potentially top of fresh cuts for 2021. (laughs) Bold statement for February 2nd. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, would I be surprised? No, but uh, we got a long way to go. But with that said, yeah, I'm pretty much in agreement with Dawn and Venom here. Excellent movie. Um, The track record was there going into it. You know, when I read the synopsis, when I pulled it up on Shutter, it felt like familiar territory for that. Like, you know, it wasn't like something so out of bounds of what had previously been done <laughs> that I was like, okay, this is um, something that sounds like they know how to do. And they delivered another one. Um, I loved the story. Uh, I liked the characters. I liked the fact that when you get a story like this and you obviously you have like your protagonist and whatever's going after them what the entity and all that but i like how they find a way to make certain characters like a little gray area ish not so much that they're guilty in the traditional sense but there's more to things or there's more to the situation than you know and things start unfolding and i think you know once once we get the scene in the movie where uh, mysteries start getting explained and solved as to like what happened in the past, it feels like the movie really kicks up another notch at that point, which that's usually like the trigger. In, I mean, that's pretty normal for like, oh, my God, we just discovered this. Well, that means uh, something's about to happen. And boy, did it happen. And the scene, some of the stuff we get from that point on is just fantastic. And it's like you just have that grin on your face watching it like while they're going for it. And they hit the marks pretty much with everything in this movie. Um, If, you know, if I had to compare it to Satan Slaves and Impedidor, it's, I would probably, I think it was you, Venom, it, it, it might be just under those two but i mean what what does that matter when all three of them are really good you know exactly yeah so um and and that's also with me having only watched this one once um the other two i had seen a couple times so 
you know, there'll probably be an adjustment um, watching it a second time later in the year. But, you know, without getting into too much of the story, which we'll do in spoilers, I will just echo it and say it's easily my number one so far of 2021. Not that that <laughs> matters in the first week of February so much, but yeah. mark it down as something that could be on a list, like like Dawn is saying. Um, um, but, yeah, I have... Lots of fun with this. I would highly recommend it. Uh, th- I mean, this is one of the ones where you like it so much where you pretty much tell people, hey, if it's on your list of things to watch, you might want to throw it on, onto the top just so you don't get disappointed by other stuff potentially first. Go straight to this one. <laughs> or, even miss it, or even miss it because it slips through the cracks. Right. Exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah. You know, Back to the point about this one just being a a, a step below the last couple of movies, just to clarify, when it comes from a a storytelling standpoint, I think this is just as good as the last couple of movies that we were talking about. But like I said, since this one isn't directed by Joko, uh, we got, you know, just a a little bit more elementary filmmaking than what we're used to from Arnoir. So, like I said, nothing against Kimo. I think he does a great job here better than 90% of directors that would have been given this same uh, screenplay. So, uh, you know, he's definitely an up-and-coming director. I'm looking forward to watching more of his stuff, be it horror or non-horror. But, yeah, it's just... I think I've just developed um, such a... What's the word I'm looking for? Just like a taste for Arnoir's filmmaking that I almost missed it watching this. Like, this one, you can tell that the pedigree is still there that, you know, that this was written by Arnoir. It's got the bones of a Joko Arnoir film, but just in its final execution, it maybe lacks just a little tiny bit of the polish that we get from Joko. And definitely a lot of like the, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like the, uh, just the meanness of it, you know, the, um, this movie could have been a lot meaner. This movie is very mean. Don't get me wrong. Very brutal, very unforgiving. But, you know, when you think about what's going on in Satan's Slaves and Impetigor, obviously it just comes off as a little bit more, um, I'm not even sure what the word I'm looking for is, just a little bit more of a sense of urgency with what was going on in those films. And obviously because of a certain element with this film, um, with the Infinite Loop, which, you know, we'll get into later on, um, it just kind of makes it feel a little bit more basic because we've seen it so much. Now I'm, I'm the kind of person who always says, I'm not going to knock a movie because they're doing things that we've seen before, because if they're doing it well, then it's still a, a triumph in my opinion. And this movie is an absolute triumph. Like I said, we're not really seeing a lot of new stuff that we haven't seen in horror before, but they just execute it so well that it still comes off as fresh. And when you're watching the movie, you're not thinking about it. It's not like when a kill happens, you're like, Oh, I saw that in, you know, whatever city of the living dead, blah, blah, blah. You know, um, you know, you've seen it before, but it doesn't affect your enjoyment of the film. So yeah, this is, this is, uh, a great little film, if not basic, but still very, very, uh, just enjoyable. Um, I feel like of all the films that Arnoir is associated with, this is probably the one that would play the most with, you know, basic American horror movie fans, um, just because it feels more like a Hollywood film than any of the previous ones we talked about, you know, and things like that. So uh, it's definitely a movie that you'd have to kind of watch to understand what I'm talking about, what we're all talking about here. But, you know, I, you're not going to waste your 99 minutes. These are... 
This this is ninety as Don and I have already said. This is ninety nine minutes of just straight um, action. Like I said, you're you're maybe getting five ten minutes of some minor character development at the beginning just to introduce people because there are so many characters in here. Um, but it, it's still worth your time. It's worth your time. It's worth second watches. Mike was talking about how much he might enjoy it on the second watch. Yeah, Mike, I've watched it three times now, and I like it more every time. Um, I watched. I literally just finished watching it about a half hour ago, just to finalize my notes for tonight. And yeah, I walked away just ear to ear grin on my face. Absolutely love it. And um, sorry to be a little sexist here too, but man, the women in these Indonesian movies are attractive. <laughs> Sorry to say it, ladies, but yeah. Uh, and, and I'm not speaking like overtly hot, like supermodel. I mean like girl next door attractive. Like there's two or three women in this movie that are just beautiful. Um, I love the main girl from Ipatigor. I love the wife from Satan's Slaves. So for whatever it's worth, I, I know it's a terrible thing to say in 2021, but, um, you know, there's something. Hey, and you know what? I'll say it anyway. The men are pretty handsome, too. <laughs> all three guys in this movie. So ultimately, this movie is filled with beautiful people. So it, it kind of feels like an American film in that sense, at least. So take take from that what you will. I'm an asshole, whatever. You can send your hate mail to Mr. Venom Podcasts at gmail.com. <laughs> all right. Well, <laughs> I will probably reserve everything for the spoiler section. So, uh, Don, you got anything else before we hit the spoilers? Uh, I'm glad he actually finds Indonesian women attractive because they've been my favorite Asians for a long, long time. Even more so than Japanese, but that's a separate story. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a conversation for another podcast. Yeah. But I, at least I will say... That I am noticing yeah. them, and I, I like their everyday good looks. Like they don't look like yeah. women um, who take a lot of time on themselves. You know, they don't spend an hour in front of the mirror. Especially the star of Impetigor. Mm -hmm. I absolutely loved her. She was adorable throughout the entire movie, whether she was happy, scared, whatever. And it looks like she puts very little effort into her into her looks. So yeah, I appreciate I, that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I, I'm I'm much more of the down to earth style than the high yes. makeup. High makeup look, so yeah, no, I, I've long been a fan of the Indonesian look for years. So uh, glad to see you're coming on board with that. Oh yeah, I'm coming around. <laughs> All right, folks, let's jump into our walkthrough. This is your final spoiler warning. If you have not watched the film yet and do plan on it, uh, I would say pause here and come back after you watch the film. If you've already watched it or have no interest in watching it, by all means, stick around and uh, enjoy our walkthrough. So, The Queen of Black Magic, which is technically 2019 in because uh, it was released in Indonesia, but it is still solidly a 2021 film for us in the States. So, our movie opens up with uh, a family of five uh, traveling to an orphanage. As the family is uh, talking in the car, we realize that the dad grew up at this orphanage and that he is returning to visit his uh, former, um, well, what do they call it, like the head of the orphanage who was uh, basically running the whole place, who basically raised um, Hanif, who is our main male character, and um, two of his friends who basically considers brothers. Um, so I'm going to go through all the names once, and I'm going to do my best to remember them as we go through the film. So our, our movie starts out with our original five 
uh, uh, characters in the family. That is the dad named Hanif, or for short, they call him Nif throughout the movie. We've got his wife named Nadia, who uh, multiple times in the movie is called Ya. I noticed, too, um, I don't know if this is an Indonesian thing or just uh, Asian in general, but when they shorten names there, rather than going for the first syllable of the name, they go with the latter syllable. So like in America, my name is Jerry. Most people call me Jer or asshole. I've been called too. There's that. <laughs> but whereas here, if someone's name is Hanif, the short is Neef. If their name is Eva, they're called Va. So I, I just thought that was kind of cool to point out. So just some cultural differences there. So, okay, like I said, Hanif's wife is Nadia. Um, he has his daughter named Dina. His uh, youngest son named Haki, H-A-Q-I. Uh, they call him Ki throughout the film. Go figure. And then the eldest son, Sandy. They are traveling, like I said, to an orphanage where the dad grew up. Um, on their way to the orphanage, unfortunately, they hit a deer, or at least they think they hit a deer. Uh, they hit something, and then when they uh, exit the car to look to see what they hit, they actually find a dead deer on the side of the road. Problem is, this deer already has flies flying around it. There's not, like, visible decay on it yet, but it definitely doesn't look like a new kill. Uh, but they're obviously, you know, they're, they're in a little bit of a rush. They want to get to the orphanage. So they just decide, okay, we hit a deer, let's get out of here. And as the car is pulling away, we see the camera pan to the other side of the road. And unfortunately, we see the body of a little girl there on the side that the, that the family didn't notice. Apparently, that's what they hit. But um, there, there's going to be more to that story a little bit later on. So, like I said, they decide to continue going to the orphanage. Uh, the family meet up with Maman and Siti. Uh, they are basically uh, two orphans that used to be, that grew up at this orphanage, but they are now adults and have decided to stay at the orphanage to kind of take care of the place because uh, Mr. Bandy, or Bandai, uh, the guy who, um, you know, who has been running the place for, you know, decades, it seems, has he's gotten old and he's kind of fallen ill. He's bedridden. So now we've got, like I said, Maman and Siti to take care of the place. Um, at that point, two more uh, orphans that grew up at the uh, orphanage show up. And those two gentlemen are Anton and Jeffrey. And um, Anton's wife name is Ava. Ava is kind of a high-maintenance, almost like a trophy wife type person. She's constantly spraying herself with uh, something throughout the movie. It seems like it's perfume, but we'll get into that in a little bit as to what she's actually spraying on herself and why. Um, and then the third in our little menagerie of men that grew up at this orphanage, his name is Jeffrey and his wife's name is Lena. Lena is an absolutely stunning woman who unfortunately suffers from body dysmorphia. Um, for anyone who doesn't know what that is, that's basically um, when people look in the mirror and they either um, notice imperfections in their body that aren't actually there, like thin women who look in the mirror and see themselves as fat. Um, that's an example of body dysmorphia. So unfortunately, Lena suffers from this, which ends up becoming kind of her demise later on. But once again, we're a little ahead of ourselves. So we've now met all three pairs of husband and wives. Luckily, the um, 
Anton and Jeffrey don't have any kids because that would just be more names that I'd have to memorize. So <laughs> luckily we can move on from there. Um, let's see. Uh, as I mentioned, the orphanage owner, manager, whatever you want to call it, Mr. Band Bandai or Bandy. Um, like I said, he is dying and bedridden. And um, uh, while they're there, they also meet two orphans, uh, actual orphans who are currently staying at the orphanage. Um, their names are Hosby and Ronnie, R-A-N-I, Ronnie. Uh, most people call her, she's the only one who's actually called Ron throughout the movie. They actually call her by the first syllable of her name instead of the second, which I just now realized as I'm sitting here. So I just made myself look dumb with my earlier comment, but whatever. <laughs> um, and basically the very first night that all the families are at the orphanage, um, the youngest son, Haki, asks um, one of the orphans that's still currently at the orphanage about a room that's locked and adjacent to the, uh, the rooms that they're staying in. Haki asks about the room, and then, of course, we get the cryptic answer of, oh, that room's locked, it's been locked for a very long time, and that's it. Nobody expands on that. Of course, that leaves Haki, you know, as, you know, your average 8- to 10-year-old kid, very curious about what's going on. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Uh, at one point, Haki kind of separates from the group and goes to that door to see what's going on, to see if he can get in there and see if it's locked, if he can get in. Um, he is surprised by, the, um, by Ronnie, the female orphan who's still staying there. And she basically tells Haki the story of Mrs. Mira or Miss Mira. And what the story is, is that Miss Mira is a former adult who was, um, you know, also a caretaker there at the orphanage. And she was basically accused of witchcraft at one point. Um, a fire had started in one of the bedrooms in the orphanage and um, Mr. Bandy basically uh, accused her of starting the fire and accused her of black magic. And they basically, um, you know, deemed her a witch. Um, the three boys, we see a flashback scene of the three men, Jeffrey, Anton, and Hanif, as uh, teenagers kind of uh, restraining the woman and forcing her into her room. Um, Ronnie continues with her story saying that after Miss Mira was locked in the bedroom, she basically kept smashing at the door with her hands and especially with her head, just, you know, bashing it, bashing it, trying to get people to let her in. Of course, the inevitable happens. She eventually hits her head so hard that her skull basically cracks and she dies. Um, and that's the end of the story as of right now. And Ronnie ends the story with, a very cryptic line that says, some say Miss Mira is still trapped in this room. And then she just kind of laughs and walks away, um, almost like she was messing with Haki. But remember that statement, because that will definitely come into play here in a little bit. So um, at this point, the family, is, all the families, excuse me, are just kind of getting reacquainted with uh, the orphanage and everybody that's still there. At one point, they ask where all the orphans are, because like I said, there's only two currently at the orphanage right now. Uh, Maman lets them know that, oh, they're on a day trip in the city. They took the bus, the orphanage's bus, um, to go to this day trip, and that they'll be back later in the evening. So there you go. Um so at this point, the family is looking at photo albums and they're all just kind of reminiscing because, you know, this is the first time that the wives have ever been here, obviously. They've only heard the stories about, you know, the boys growing up at the orphanage and blah, blah, blah. Um, so they're looking at pictures. 
Um, but suddenly Hockey finds a separate photo album that looks like it's hidden underneath a cabinet. He pulls it out, and it looks like the photo album is filled with Polaroids, but they're facing backwards. So you're literally just looking at the white backs of the pictures, except for one picture, which is folded um, in the inner flap of the uh, photo album. Uh, Hanif grabs the picture, opens it up, and you can see his expression instantly change. As it turns out, it is a picture of Miss Mira. I, ooh, I'm sorry, folks. I actually forgot a little bit of the backstory. Uh, the reason that Miss Mira was accused of being a witch, along with that fire, is that she went out into the woods with one of the female orphans uh, named Murni, M-U-R-N-I. Uh, they went out to the woods one night, and Miss Mira came back, and Murni never did. So that's part of why she was accused of murdering this girl, burying her body in the forest. So that also is a factor in this whole thing. Um, so back to the photo album. Uh, when Hanif finds the picture and pulls it out, he lets people know uh, this is Miss Mira. And finally, Haki asks, well, who's the little girl? And uh, Hanif, you know, right away says, well, that's Murni. And, you know, Haki is basically asking, you know, so what happened to her? Um, Anton says, no one really knows. She just went missing. And Haki kind of relays parts of the story that Ronnie had told him out in the hallway where he's like, oh, isn't that the girl that Miss Mira killed and buried in the forest? Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, um, uh, what's her name? Dina, Dina, the sister actually kind of admonishes hockey, you know, for, to, you know, asking these questions and talking about such a morbid story, you know, while everybody's reminiscing, blah, blah, blah. So uh, the three men then end up going outside uh, just to talk about uh, random things and to unpack the rest of their luggage from the car. And they talk about uh, the fact that the owners are potentially thinking about selling the orphanage. Um, Hanif basically squashes that by saying, no, the owners are rich. They, they have no need for money. Why would they sell the orphanage? But then Anton makes another very cryptic statement and he says, well, they can't sell this place because imagine what they'll find if someone buys it or what they'll uncover, I think was his exact words. Hanif and Jeffrey just look at each other, don't really acknowledge the statement and just walk away. So another statement to keep in the back of your head there. While Hanif is outside unpacking the car, he notices a blood spot and a little patch of hair caught uh, on the front of his car, you know, at the impact point um, from the accident on the way in. He pulls the little patch of hair off and instantly realizes this isn't deer fur, this is human hair. And he starts to worry that, oh shit, maybe I actually hit somebody and didn't notice them. So Hanif and Jeffrey get back into Hanif's car and they drive back to the spot of the accident. They find the deer once again. Um, you know, Hanif shows Jeffrey, this is the deer that I thought we hit, blah, blah, blah. But then Hanif, or excuse me, Jeffrey goes to the other side of the street and he finds the body of the girl. And it does look like she is definitely dead. Hasn't moved from the spot that we saw her at earlier. Um, you know, Hanif start, had, they both start panicking because, um, as it turns out, they are a couple of hours away from the closest police station and the telephone at the orphanage does not work. According to Maman, 
he tells them, oh, we didn't pay the bill, so they shut our phone off a couple of days ago. So there you go. And, of course, cell phones don't work out here in the boondocks. So, you know, standard horror trope number 47, cell phones don't work. So, you know, they have to decide what they're going to do. While Hanif is standing there trying to decide what he's going to do, he notices something in the distance. Uh, he pulls out his cell phone, turns on the flashlight, and starts walking towards a bus that they did not notice was there when they got into the accident on the way there. Um, Hanif is looking at the bus and, um, you know, not sure what's going on. He can't tell if there's anybody inside of it from outside. He then ends up entering the bus and he finds that everyone inside the bus is dead, not just dead, but violently murdered. Um, there is an adult in the driver's seat. It looks like his throat was slit. And then all the kids inside the bus look like most of them have had either one or both of their eyes plucked out of their head. A lot of them had both eyes plucked out. A few of them only had one plucked out. But yeah, just an entire bus of dead kids uh, at the side of the road that nobody noticed. Um, so uh, back at the orphanage, uh, the the families are having dinner. That, that's always a good uh, sign, right? A busload full of dead kids. A bus of dead kids. <laughs> We're still in the first act, and we already got a busload of dead kids. How yeah, awesome that'll that? that'll that'll uh, raise a few eyebrows. Exactly, <laughs> especially like I said, how violent it looked. I mean, there's blood everywhere. It definitely didn't look like it was a happy time. but mm -hmm. uh, So like I said, we're back at the orphanage. Um, all the families are having dinner. You know, they're having some interesting interactions. We're learning more about some of the characters. Uh, we learn how Lena, is uh, the girl with body dysmorphia, doesn't really eat dinner. You know, she usually, it, it seems like she only has like a small meal maybe earlier in the day. Um Anton and Ava both comment that she's thin and, you know, why are you on a diet? But, of course, she's embarrassed and doesn't really give a direct answer. Um, and then after dinner, um, Haki is out is in the kitchen and he basically is apologizing to Maman and Siddi um, because he says, you know, I, I tend to ask a lot of questions and it sometimes upsets people. Um, he says this specifically because when they first got to the orphanage, um, Haki noticed that City had an eye injury of some kind. One of her eyes is like swollen shut and um, it looks like there's some injury around the skin, around the eye as well. Um, he asks her when he first gets there, like a little kid would, not thinking that it's insensitive, just blurts out, what happened to your eye? And then, of course, everybody shuts him up and everything else. But um, now at this scene, we're in the kitchen. Haki is apologizing for constantly asking questions. Maman says, no, that, that, that's fine. Is there anything else you want to know? And Haki basically goes back to his original question. Uh, you know, excuse me, auntie, but what happened to your face? Uh, Siddi uh, basically explains that when she was a child, she, had, she was carrying a pot of hot water, uh, tripped, and uh, basically got a bunch of the water on her face, permanently injuring her eye and part of her face. So... You know, kind of a kind of a sad thing, but um, remember that story as well because uh, you know that that might not be the whole version of the truth. <laughs> okay, so at this point, um, everyone is in, everyone's asleep, or at least most of the adults are maybe not asleep, but they're in their rooms. Um, 
Ronnie, uh, the uh, the female orphan who's still at the orphanage, um, decides that she's going to show Hockey a videotape showing him what Miss Mira and Mernie and, you know, and, you know, what they look like, including his own father and Anton and Jeffrey as well. Just old videos that were taken. It's a cute little scene because Hockey is so young, he has no idea what a VCR is. He actually looks at it and says, what is that thing? And, you know, um, Ronnie explains, oh, it's a video recording. And uh, Hockey asks, well, why don't you just stream it? And, you know, of course, Ronnie says, streaming? And um, Hockey answers that with, you know, you know, off the Internet. And she's like, Internet? <laughs> and, and Hockey one more time tries to say, you know, like Wi-Fi. And again, she, Ronnie's like, Wi-Fi? And finally, Haki is like, you know, you can watch it on your, they call them handphones instead of cell phones, but they basically say, you know, watching videos on your handphone. And she goes, oh, handphones don't work out here, so none of us have any. So that's why she doesn't know what Wi-Fi or Internet or any of that stuff is. But um, she basically shows uh, Haki a video, you know, showing her his father and his buddies as kids playing around, doing chores, things like that. And then finally we get an image of Miss Mira and Miss Mira <laughs> looks like the sheer definition of a witch. Long, black, ratty hair. She even has a very pronounced limp. And Haki asks basically what happened to her leg. Ronnie tells him that Miss Mira had a very rough childhood and that when she was a baby, um, there was a period of time early on where, we, where she wouldn't stop crying. She just constantly crying and she basically says that her father broke her leg purposely now how that gets a baby to stop crying is fucking beyond me uh, that just sounds like cruelty for cruelty's sake honestly um but yeah uh, basically she explains that because the baby wouldn't stop crying her dad broke her leg makes total sense right yeah okay <laughs> So, um, and to explain what Miss Mira's leg kind of looks like, it looks like um, she's kind of walking, it's her left leg that's broken, and she's kind of walking like on the side of her foot. It looks like that when the bone was broken, it was broken sideways, you know, not, not front or back uh, direction, it was broken sideways. And when it healed, it healed crooked. So now, every time, you know, she basically has a very pronounced limp, but every time that left leg hits the ground, you can hear like bones cracking, not literally like bones breaking, but you know how when we crack our knuckles, that kind of sound or, or crack our neck, whatever. Um, every time she takes a step with her left leg, you hear that sound, which is incredibly uh, menacing just to, to hear that, especially in a rhythmic pattern. You know, it's in it's a footstep. It's just really creepy. Um, yeah, her leg definitely didn't heal the correct way. So, yeah, dad was uh, a super parent. All right, so um, at this point, Anton uh, goes outside. Um, Hanif and Jeffrey are back from the uh, bus site, from the bus and the car accident site. And Anton asks them, what the hell, where were they? They explain to Anton everything that happened. And they actually brought the body of the little girl, the girl that Hanif hit. They actually picked her up and put her in the back of his SUV, Um you know, so as not to leave her just out on the ground until the cops are able to get there. Obviously, we all know you're not supposed to move a body from a crime scene, but whatever. These guys were concerned. They didn't want to leave a little girl's body just out in the middle of nowhere. So they bring her back. 
they show Anton the body just to prove to him, because Anton obviously doesn't believe them, that A, they hit a little girl on the way here, and then B, that there's a busload of dead children at that site. So what ends up happening is Anton gets in his car to go check the site, and his plan is he's going to go make sure that they're telling the truth, that there is a bus full of dead kids there. And that once he verifies that, he's going to keep going down the road to the police station that, like I said, is a couple of hours away. Um, so after Anton leaves, uh, the orphans start telling kids, um, they basically, they find a rec room uh, that hasn't been used for very long, uh, for, for some time now. Uh, you know, there's a pool table in there, a television, you know, a, a few fun things to do, a dartboard, blah, blah, blah. And at this point... Um, I think it's the sister, uh, Dina, basically asks the two orphans, Hosby and Ronnie, um, what did this place used to be? Like, why are there so many bedrooms here? This this couldn't have been opened as an orphanage. And they explain that it's actually uh, a closed down mental asylum or mental institution, mental hospital, however you want to go, uh, however you want to call it, whatever the politically correct term is nowadays. Um Obviously, Hosby tries to play it off, tried to say, you know, telling Ronnie, would you stop telling stories like that? Blah, blah, blah. Um, and then finally, uh, we go back to Anton. Anton does make it to the scene of the accident. Um, he he does indeed find the bus. And then we get like a really cool set piece here. So what ends up happening is uh, Anton goes into the he can't see what's going on from outside the bus, just like Hanif couldn't tell. Um, so he goes into the bus, but this time, instead of the kids being just sprawled out and dead, they're all standing up and facing away from him, like facing the back of the bus, which is fucking terrifying. At least it was for me, because, you know, you're expecting the bodies to be in the same position they were the first time. And there they all are standing and uh, with their backs turned on Anton. Anton freaks out as soon as he sees that, tries to get out of the bus. Unfortunately, the door is now closed. He can't get out of the bus. And, of course, it's a glass door. He looks through the door outside the bus, and he sees, like, the image of a woman standing out there, a woman with, like, an overcoat or, you know, some kind of dress on, something along those lines. Uh, but, but we don't see her face. We don't see – we just see the basic silhouette in the darkness. He ends up going back into the bus to maybe try to use the back exit. But this time when he goes back in the bus, now the kids are standing up and facing him. And they're like, they're all like kind of looking at him. But like I said, most of them have had their eyes plucked out. So it's not like you can tell they're actually looking directly at him. But they are facing, you know, they're standing up and they're facing towards him. Um, he freaks out again. Uh, he starts backing up. And he steps on what looks like an egg. Just It looks like an ostrich egg, like a, just a big egg of some kind. He steps on it and just a massive amount of insects, centipedes, just random things like that come out. And they literally all just start uh, climbing up on him. They're, they're jumping on his leg. They're climbing up through his clothes. Finally, we see some of the centipedes get up to his mouth and they climb into his mouth, and um, ah, it's just just a spectacular scene. Um, another great scene with the score. You know, the music really heightens the tension in this one. And, of course, Anton dies at this point. Um, 
Let's see. Steps on the oh, bugs. They Anton. engulf him. Mm. Yeah, pretty pretty sick, and it looked pretty painful too. Like cool for definitely the bugs, not a not, not an easy day. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So at this point, we go back to the orphanage. Anton unfortunately has become our first victim of our witch, if you will. Uh, we get back to the. Um, the orphanage, and Jeffrey and his wife, Lena, are having a conversation. They're talking about um, hormone treatments. Apparently, Lena wants to take a hormone treatment because she says that she's still gaining weight. Even though she barely eats and is constantly exercising, she believes that she's still gaining weight. Like I said, the poor girl has body dysmorphia, so you know she sees what she wants to see. Um, Jeffrey's trying to be a good guy, you know, trying to say, well, you know, you've been really emotional lately. Is that also the hormones? Like, is the hormone treatment going to help this as well? At this point, though, it looks like Lena is just kind of sick of talking about it. It looks like it's a conversation that they've had many times as a married couple. Um, and she just gets kind of frustrated with Jeffrey's attitude, which actually isn't all that bad. I honestly thought that Jeffrey was trying to engage and she just felt like uh, she just really wasn't in the mood to deal with it right now. So uh, Lena ends up leaving their room. She goes out into the hall. Um, she starts eating a piece of fruit um, that was left out in a bowl. And then she finds a mirror in the hallway and she starts to look at herself in the mirror. And this is one of a couple of really cool shots in this set piece, because basically the camera is at a position where we can see Lena uh, perfectly, not just her back, but even parts of her front. And then we can see the reflection in the mirror as well. And we get that shot where the Lena that's actually there standing there is like perfectly trim and, you know, just beautiful. But then you look at the reflection in the mirror and she's got a little bit of a pot belly. She's got a little bit of a pot belly and a little bit of a double chin. And, you know, obviously showing us what she sees when she looks at herself in the mirror. Um, she ends up taking the knife that she was carving the apple with that she was eating and does something that I absolutely did not expect. Um, she basically um, grabs like she basically pinches off her belly like if she was fat, but she's not fat. So she's really just pulling skin, really. And she takes the knife and literally just starts slicing a piece of her flesh off. But obviously we would expect a blood spurt, you know, a large uh, wound. No blood comes out. She's just slicing. And then suddenly she yanks at the piece of flesh and it comes completely off her midsection with no blood. There's no blood, no wound, no anything. And then she looks at herself in the mirror and the pot belly's gone in the in the image in the mirror. So she's like, you know, she's like she's like proud of herself. She's got this shitty grin on her face where she's like, oh nice, you know, I can just cut the fat away. How easy is that? Then she continues looking in the mirror, realizes that she sees a double chin that's not there in real life. And she takes the knife and she does the same thing with her chin. She pinches off some skin from underneath her chin and starts slicing that off. Now, this time, we actually do get a little bit of blood. Not the amount of blood that you would expect, but we do see a little bit of blood after she pulls off the piece of flesh that she cuts and, you know, she kind of just rubs her neck with her hand and she's looking at herself in the mirror. And like I said, she's got this look on her face like she she feels accomplished. She's like, oh, I, I suddenly look better. 
So, you know, blah, 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 that, that's awesome. Now, at the exact same time, uh, Ava, who's Anton's wife, is sleeping in her bed in the room that they're sharing for the night. And suddenly two or three centipedes just fall from the ceiling um, and right on top of her. Um, they start crawling all over her. She obviously, you know, she does the obvious thing where she's pulling at her clothes and trying to reach in to grab the centipedes and get them out of her clothes, blah, blah, blah. Eventually, all three centipedes crawl out from her shirt um, from the top, like, you know, from her neck area. And all three of them climb into her mouth and they literally all just go into her mouth. Now, is this a dream or is this actually happening? We're not 100% sure at this point. Um, but at this point, Jeff finally leaves the bedroom that he was in, and he finds Lena in the hallway. And then we see the actual image of what she did to herself. And, yeah, it's exactly what you would expect. Her midsection has a giant, just, like, area of skin that was pulled off. Her neck uh, the, the part of her neck that she sliced off is still dangling there. Like, she didn't pull it off completely. And, of course, you know, there's blood all over her. Um, when she sees Jeff coming down the hall, she actually says, you know, Jeff gasps because he sees what's actually happening. But then she's like, what, did I not, did I not get enough? Am I still big? And, you know, uh, she ends up taking the knife uh, almost like a weapon and starts to wield it against Jeff. Like, she, she's almost upset that Jeff still doesn't find her attractive. Jeff, obviously, is reacting to what's, what he's actually looking at. Um, finally, she kind of, you see, you kind of see her snap out of it. Like, you know, she kind of blinks real quick. And then she looks in the mirror and realizes what she did to herself. Now she's actually seeing what she actually did to herself. And she, of course, freaks out, starts screaming. Um, and then she passes out, of course. Um, you know, once she actually gets a full shot of what she did to herself, she passes out. Jeff, of course, grabs her, um, starts to go downstairs because, you know, she wants to, he wants to get out of there and take his wife to the hospital. As they're, as, literally, as they're carrying Lena out of the house, Eva, Anton's wife, comes out of the room that they're in and she can't breathe. She's choking. She's grabbing at her throat and she's, you know, coughing like, you know, no air is getting through her airways. Suddenly, out of nowhere, she pukes blood right into Nadia's face. Um, and, you know, she's freaking out. Suddenly, we see this great effect of the centipedes crawling under her skin inside her flesh, which is just creepy as all shit. Um, and she does what most people do in that situation. She literally grabs a chunk of her forearm and just rips it off. And I'm not talking like a little pinch. I'm talking like a handful. She literally just digs her whole right hand into her left forearm and just pulls out a big chunk and centipedes fall out of it. Like multiple centipedes fall out. Apparently these three centipedes that got in there multiplied quick. Because suddenly there's like a few this dozen was, of them. This was a great scene. Yeah. Oh, God. So good. Pretty much every scene involving centipedes in this movie <laughs> is awesome. I've never seen CG centipedes look so good. It was awesome. <laughs> okay. So, um, like I said, uh, let's see. At this point, uh, we go back to the kids in the rec room. Danny and Hosby are playing pool. 
uh, Dina ends up beating him at pool and he gets visibly upset. Like she, she, she's having a little fun, like giving him some, you know, playful jabs and he like just flips out. He throws his pool cue on the floor and then he just runs over to this cabinet and pulls out a gun, a fucking rifle. I, w- I wasn't sure, you know, what, if it was like a high caliber rifle or something like that, because I'm not ultra familiar with guns, but as it turns out, it's an air rifle. Um, I actually looked it up. It's a gun that actually exists. It's a bolt action air rifle that shoots 20 caliber pellets. Um, I didn't know 20 caliber even existed. I thought 22 caliber was the smallest caliber of like something that would actually be considered a bullet. They call them pellets, but they're still loaded into a magazine and shot one at a time. So they're not, it's not a true BB gun, if you will. It's just, like I said, it's an air rifle that shoots 20 caliber pellets. So, um, like I said, uh, Hosby pulls that rifle out of the cabinet and he sees that there's a rat, uh, standing at the desk, just kind of chilling there, minding its own business. Hosby, for some reason, turns the lights off in the rec room, which instantly makes, um, Dina uncomfortable. You know, she, she's, you know, she's pleading with him, please turn the lights back on. I'm afraid of the dark, blah, blah, blah. And then, uh, you know, he basically starts threatening her with the gun, not necessarily threatening the shooter, but he does point the gun at her because uh, it's got a flashlight on it. It's one of those. It's got like a tactical light on it. Um, you know, very aliens, if you will. Um, so he points the gun at her more to give her light because she says that she wants to leave. He points the gun and the flashlight at the door and basically just tells her, fine, go leave. I don't care. Um, she gets pissed off at him. She accuses him of being not as nice as she thought he was. He accuses her of being a slut because she was, you know, she was overly friendly with him. She was very friendly, getting a lot of her attention. You know, it's not like she banged him or anything. I mean, it's a teenage girl for Christ's sake. So, um, but like I said, he accuses her of being a slut, which of course is going to upset any woman. She gets pissed off and leaves the room. Um, and then at that point, um, Hosby is about to shoot the rat and then some invisible force suddenly makes him drop the rifle. Like, you know, you know, the obvious filmmaking technique when their limbs are being controlled by some other force that's not them. You can see the look on his face that he's not actually doing these things. Um, whatever it is that's making him do this makes him grab a staple gun um, that is on the desk. He picks up the staple gun. He's obviously fighting, trying to resist, uh, but eventually he ends up stapling his own mouth shut in a very, very cool sequence. This is another sequence that has some great uh, music uh, playing in the background. I actually thought it sounded very reminiscent of what you might have heard in Hereditary a couple of years ago um, from Colin Stetson, who did that soundtrack. Not necessarily the whole score of the movie, but the scenes where people are actually, you know, being haunted or, you know, going through damage, whatever. Uh, those scenes, the music is very reminiscent of uh, uh, Hereditary. So, yeah, look out for that. All right. So, um, uh, like I said, he uh, so Hosby at this point has completely stapled his mouth shut. It looks like he stapled his mouth like, I don't know, six to eight times, just stapled it completely shut. And then at this point, uh, we go outside and, uh, oh, okay, I'm sorry. Um, at this point, uh, 
the kids are the only ones, the kids and then, of course, the sick guy in bed are some of the only people left here. Uh, the two caretakers are probably running around somewhere, even though we don't really see them. Um, now, the carload of people, they are, uh, they realize that they are in a loop and they realize this because they don't stop at, at, the, at the site of the bus accident, which uh, luckily is uh, tagged with a sign on it that says kilometer 81, so they know exactly where it is. And we get, the, we get that kind of standard horror trope where they're just driving in a straight line, but they continuously go past kilometer 81. And uh, at that point, Hanif kind of comes clean and tells everyone or tells the wives in the car, well, the wives that are conscious at this point, what exactly really happened. And this is where he, he admits that, um, you know, that they caught Miss Mira performing black magic. I mean, this is what they say, mind you. Um, and that they, you know, they kind of, tell the story just like Ronnie was telling it earlier. You know, they grabbed her, they trapped her in the room. She bashed her head against the door and she'll, until she died. But then Hanif continues the story from that point. He lets the rest of the people in the car know that after uh, all the banging stopped, they went back in the room and saw that Miss Mira was basically on the brink of death, just head cracked open, eyes glazed over, just basically dead. And I, I, in their infinite wisdom, they decide to bury her right there in the room that they're in. They literally pull up the floorboards, dig up a hole, and bury her in that fucking room. So remember what Ronnie said earlier. Some people say she's still trapped in this room. Well, there you go. She was being more literal than you thought she was. Um, and they actually show the scene to us, too, where they're like, like they don't even bury the hole very deep or excuse me, they don't dig the hole very deep. The hole is literally just barely big enough that they could put her in there. Uh, they do mention that they cover her with concrete. Uh, we don't actually see that, but they do say that they did. And then they replace the floorboards that they pulled up. So, you know, they thought. Yeah, everything, everything's fine. What they didn't know is that a young Maman and Siti are actually watching the events from outside a window. They're, they're outside the building looking through a window, looking into that room, and they witness everything that the three boys did uh, to, Miss, uh, to Miss Mira. Um, what that means? Hmm, don't really know yet, but keep that in mind that we do have witnesses to the event. Okay. Um, so like I said, we get that story, we get the witness, um, then we're back at the orphanage, and Hosby, uh, is still in the rec room, um, oh, I'm sorry, this is where he staples his mouth shut, very, very sorry, um, I was a little ahead of myself, so yeah, so this is the scene where he staples his mouth shut, after he staples his mouth shut, Hockey is seen in the television room, the room where they were watching the video earlier, and he grabs another random videotape and puts it in the VCR, because apparently a 10-year-old knows how to use a VCR after watching somebody use it once. So there you go. Um, he throws in a video that is basically just a very odd video just showing Miss Mira walking around. Basically, she's walking around, uh, walking down the hall, but then suddenly... In the video, uh, the sun, out of nowhere, it goes to dark. Uh, originally, the scene was uh, was daylight. 
But then you realize that uh, the scene that we're watching on the video probably wasn't actually what was filmed because now, as Hockey is watching this video, he starts to hear Miss Mira's footsteps in the room that he's in. Um, he obviously looks around a couple of times, doesn't see her. Finally, uh, he's watching the video. The camera is in front of Hockey showing uh, the area behind him. And then we see and uh, we see the image of Miss Mira in the real world, walking down that hall, coming into the room that Hockey is in. Of course, Hockey turns around instantly and Miss Mira is not there. There's nothing there. Um, you know, this is, you know, probably one of the better jump scares in the movie. Uh, as soon as Hockey turns back towards the television, he looks below the television and sees a pair of decayed feet. Very reminiscent of Don't Listen. If anybody saw Don't Listen, there's that same scene there where the kid sees the feet underneath the uh, plastic separation uh, between his room and the part that's getting fixed. Um, he sees the feet below the television. He looks up and there's Miss Mira standing behind the television. Um, you know, we get a we get a nice little shot of her kind of growling at him, if you will. Not literally growling, but, you know, making her little witchy noise. And the scene just ends right there. So, after that, uh, let's see. Which is runs in the rec room. Okay. Uh, after after that, hockey. Um, you know, he's seen uh, running into the rec room. So right after the jump scare, apparently hockey leaves the room that he's in, the TV room, and he runs into the rec room. Um, Hosby is still there with his mouth stapled shut. As soon as Hosby notices that uh, Haki is in there, again, an invisible force makes um, Hosby pick up the air rifle again and starts pointing it at the boy. And you can kind of tell that Hosby is fighting it. He's trying desperately. You know, the invisible force is making him aim right at Haki. And the first couple of shots that go off, he's able to kind of move the gun a couple of inches one way or the other. Unfortunately, eventually, he does end up shooting Haki right in the leg, um, which, you know, Haki drops instantly, and he's in pain. And then... <laughs> Hosby ends up shooting him two more times. Yes, a 10-year-old boy shot once in the leg and twice in the arms with a 20 caliber pellet. And, you know, luckily, you know, this isn't the end of hockey at this point. So uh, good for him. Uh, the scene ends, though, with him having been shot. Uh, we, that, we now go back outside and the carload of people are back. They're back from their little infinite loop, their Mobius strip of a trip. And um, basically, they realize that hockey is missing. Um, they find everyone else. They find, you know, the two orphans. They find the adult orphans that are still there working. They find their two adult, oh, not adult, but their two older kids, Dina and uh, Sandy. And then uh, they realize that hockey is missing. Uh, so they literally have everybody searching for hockey all over the house. During the search, uh, Jeff, Jeffrey's still outside uh, because uh, Dina and Ava are still in the backseat of the car. Remember, they took them to go to the hospital, ended up in the infinite loop and came back. These two girls are very injured, so they didn't want to take them out of the car unnecessarily. So they tell Jeffrey to stay there and watch them while everybody else goes their separate ways to look for Haki. At that point, 
he looks inside the car and realizes that his wife, Lena, is missing. She's not in the car. He starts looking around the general area and he sees somebody uh, on their knees, you know, probably like 12, 15 feet away. He starts to walk towards the figure and it is Lena. Unfortunately, she is eating a handful of Asian caterpillars. And uh, anybody knows about Asian caterpillars, they're gigantic and hairy. They're not like the little guys that we have here in the U.S., they're big and fucking hairy and they're scary looking. And she literally has two fistfuls and she's just like a possessed zombie just eating them. Um, caterpillar. And for those who don't know, two um, Asian caterpillars are uh, poisonous. If you ingest them, it's pretty much certain death. So um, at that point, uh, Jeff Jeffrey tries to get Lena out of her trance. You know, he eventually is able to get her out of it. She realizes that she's holding two handfuls of caterpillars and just throws them to the ground. Um, she starts scratching at all her wounds like she's really itchy and just starts screaming, what happened to me? What's happening to me? I don't understand. She ends up passing out. Jeffrey grabs her and goes back into the house. At this point, Nadia is still looking for her son, her youngest son, Hockey, and she goes into Mr. Bandy's room, um, who's still, you know, bedridden. She looks under the bed to see if maybe he's hiding under the bed from something, and she ends up finding this little secret compartment that looks like at one point it was hidden by floor tiles, but it looks like the floor tiles maybe shifted a little bit, so they're not perfectly in place hiding uh, the little hidey hole. So she reaches her hand into the little area and pulls out a little, this very ornate trinket box, like a gold and jeweled trinket box. Uh, she opens up the box and unfortunately she finds a bunch of uh, pornographic pictures. Not really pornographic to us as Americans. We're used to a lot more, but obviously she instantly realizes that these are kids. These are orphans. Um, all from this orphanage, Basically, um, Mr. Bandy is taking very lewd pictures of her, of them, of all of them. Like I said, they find like maybe a dozen pictures and somehow Mr. Bandy framed every picture so that he could actually see himself in a, in a tall mirror that's on the opposite side of the room. So all the pictures have the, the girl orphans on the bed in like their pajamas, um, and then you see Mr. Bandy in his underwear in the mirror reflection. I don't know if that was purposeful on his part, but whatever. There you go. Um, so, yes. So now the secret has been revealed that Mr. Bandy has been sexually assaulting the female orphans at this orphanage. Nadia grabs the pictures and shows them to her husband, Hanif. Um, instantly, Hanif looks at him and he's in shock. He's just like, I have no idea what I'm looking at. Um, his wife accuses him of knowing the whole time, actually accuses the three guys of working with Mr. Bandy to frame uh, Miss Mira and, you know, to basically just to give them a reason to kill her and bury her body. Um, but it's very obvious that the boys didn't know anything about it because Hanif then takes the pictures and hands them to Jeffrey. Jeffrey looks at him and he instantly starts crying and starts basically exclaiming, I didn't know about this. We didn't know about this. What is going on? So, you know, obviously everyone is basically finding out at the same time that Mr. Bandy is a sexual deviant, um, which, of course, shocks everyone there. 
while they're looking through the pictures, they end up finding a picture of City. Of, uh, like I said, she's the female adult orphan who now works at the orphanage, uh, Maman's wife. And um, they realize that City is one of the orphans that was abused uh, by Mr. Bandy. Um, Maman instantly, you know, shows her the picture. She grabs it and just tries to, like, hide it. Not hide it, but, like, just doesn't want anybody else looking at it anymore. And then she tells, she basically then starts telling another story where she's talking about um, how she had been, you know, molested by Mr. Bandy multiple times and that what she did was she burned her face on purpose. So the, the damage on her face was not accidental. She did it on purpose in the hopes that Mr. Bandy wouldn't find her attractive anymore and would leave her alone. Whether it worked or not, don't know. Nobody really mentions anything about that after it. They just kind of drop the subject. And, uh, you know, like I said, they continue with their search for uh, young hockey. Um, let's see. Oh, right. Now, at this point, the girl that was hit, the girl that Hanif hit with his car earlier, who they, her body is now in the backseat of his SUV, she walks into the house. So apparently she wasn't dead. She was just out for a very long time. She comes into the house and she relays the story of how, of what happened to the bus. Uh, unfortunately, folks, there are a lot of flashback scenes in this movie. So if you're not a big fan of, you know, stories being told out of order, might not be the movie for you, but, you know, for whatever it's worth, it worked for me. Um, so the girl, whose name ends up being uh, Mustika, basically tells the story of how they were on their way back from their day trip. She had headphones on. She had these big over-the-ear headphones. Um, so she says that the bus ran off the road out of nowhere. That Didn't really know what was going on because she wasn't paying attention. Just realized that the bus suddenly went off the road. Mm -hmm. And then she gets up because she's kind of scrunched down in the seat, you know, not really able to see the front of the bus. After the accident, she sits up and she sees all of her classmates basically bashing their head into the windows, bashing their heads into like the metal framework of the seats, pulling out their own hair, grabbing at their skin, you know, basically just everybody's decimating themselves. And then she looks in the background and you see the image of the witch at the front of the bus, just standing there, just kind of yeah, controlling the action. The, uh, uh, the This story is not for the faint of heart when it comes to, like, children mm -hmm. and the abuse and murder and exploitation of children. Not that we – it's not so much that we get any, like, graphic depictions of it, but just the fact that it's kind of the backdrop to the setup yeah. of the story. It's – still um pretty harsh because you just yeah, as, you know the mysteries behind what's going on start to unfold and you realize like what led up to the current situation it's just like oh damn like it's and i kind of like had a feeling because at the beginning when it's like oh yeah we're all from this orphanage and we're going back to it i'm like uh-oh orphanage usually <laughs> kids and it tends to be kids who might you know not have a good support system and yeah. Uh -oh. <laughs> that, that is the case, yeah. And it does suck to see this old man, Mr. Bandy, who, you know, is kind of set up as this sweet old man who's taking care of orphans. And then, honestly, he turns out to be the big bad of this movie. Yeah, we've got a witch who's torturing these people, but, you know, I'd rather side with the witch than the guy, you know, sexually assaulting children. So, yeah. 
So we, you know, uh, Mr. Bandy has now been exposed at, um, oh, I'm sorry. Um, Mustika is, like I said, she's still relaying the story. She talks about how, you know, everybody on the bus was killing themselves, doing damage to themselves. She was able to get out of the bus and we actually see her running towards the road and suddenly a car hits her out of nowhere. So yeah, that's, you know, we, we finally get to see that, um, Hanif did actually hit this girl and not the deer that was on the opposite side of the road. Obviously, everybody, you know, once Mustika is done with her story, everybody feels terrible, you know, that they hit her and that she's she was out on the side of the road for hours, blah, blah, blah. On top of the fact that she had to witness all of her friends basically killing themselves in front of her. So, yeah, definitely a rough day for Mustika. Um, at this point, Hanif just kind of snaps and he runs upstairs to Mr. Bandy's room and just starts strangling him, just starts trying to choke the life out of the man. Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on what side of the coin you're on, Nadia shows up and stops him uh, before he's able to completely choke Mr. Bandy out. At this point, Hanif finds another picture in the little trinket box that apparently uh, Nadia didn't see the first time she was in there. Pulls out the picture, and it is a goddamn picture of Miss Mira in a hospital bed holding a baby. They turn the picture over, and it's Myrnie. Yes, Myrnie and Miss Mira were actually blood mother and daughter. Um, so Myrnie technically was not an orphan. She was staying at the orphanage probably because her mother, you know, worked there or was helping to run the place. So, you know, we now realize that Myrnie, the girl who was supposedly killed by Mira, is actually her flesh and blood daughter. Um at this point, uh, Haki is found. Uh, basically, Hasby has come out of his trance. He pulled all the staples out of his mouth, and he carries Haki into the room. He basically says, I don't know what happened. Something forced me to do this to him. I didn't mean it. Luckily, the parents don't go off on him. They understand that there's a lot of supernatural shit going on. So um, they grab Haki, and they basically try to leave the, uh, the orphanage. As they get outside, though, Ava, Anton's wife, uh, you know, the woman who swallowed the centipedes, she is now also awake and she is standing on the hood of uh, Hanif's car and she is very obviously possessed. She's not herself. Uh, she starts talking very cryptically about revenge and how nobody's getting out of here, blah, blah, blah. But then suddenly she snaps out of it for a second. She realizes that she's standing on top of Hanif's car, starts asking, uh, you know, where's Anton? You know, because obviously Anton was already dispatched, but nobody knows at this point. Um, and then suddenly out of nowhere, um, Ava drops to her knees and starts slamming her head into the car windshield. Very reminiscent of what Miss Mira did when she was trapped in her bedroom. And she basically is just slamming her head in until we finally hear that crack, that very familiar crack that we know and love. She falls off the car and she's out cold, potentially dead. I mean, we never really get a confirmation, but I mean, you could probably make a good assumption that she's gone at this point. Um, the witch, or excuse me. Um, yeah, uh, basically this is the scene where the witch, uh, after Ava bashes her head in, Hanif looks over to the distance past the car and there's a woman standing there. Um, the same woman that we saw on the bus earlier with both 
uh, the flashback and with Anton when he was on the bus. And uh, again, I don't know what it is about female antagonists floating that I fucking love, but I goddamn loved it. She's standing there and without saying a word, she levitates a couple of feet above the uh, above the ground and starts to float towards the group. Now, and if if anybody remembers our review of the dark and the Whippi- uh, the dark and the wicked, you remember how much I absolutely love the scene of the mother floating up in the air outside the window. I think ever since the ending of The Witch in 2015, I absolutely love female antagonists floating in the air. There's something just so menacing about it, you know? Um, so anyway, like I said, our witch... I, 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 I uh-huh. want to agree with that. There's been some yeah. really good kind of like feet floating in the air and by no means am i a tarantino foot fetish person but for some for some reason like in the in the past couple years we've just gotten those sequences where it's just shot effectively well and it's i i always find it creepy and i think it might go back to my um affinity for being creeped out by like hanging bodies like hanging from a noose where there's like feet dangling so then even when it's like you know some type of witch or supernatural creature and they're like floating through the air and their feet are almost in that same position it it creeps me out almost just as much yeah yeah absolutely love it thus far no one's done it wrong so (laughs) until it happens i love these scenes so uh, like I said, our witch floats towards the group, but we do not see her face yet. So we're still not sure the actual, you know, we're still under the assumption that it's Miss Mira. But, you know, we don't get confirmation during this scene. At this point, the witch, with her back to the camera, basically pins Hanif down to the ground. Not physically like she jumps on top of him, but like with her magic, basically forces him to be pinned down to the ground. And then she starts to basically uh, possess Nadia um, and tries to force her to kill her husband um, with a sickle, with like a hand sickle that, you know, we've seen multiple times in the film at this point. Um, She's uh, she basically doesn't attack her husband with the sickle. She tries to attack um, the witch, but the witch stops her, of course, and then Basically, once the witch kind of releases her, again, she's going to try to, you know, attack the witch with the sickle. But then from behind, what do we see? But City hitting her in the back of the head with a brick. Yes, it looks like City either is a part of this or is also possessed by the witch. Let's reserve judgment until we get to the end. Uh, But yeah, um, at this point, you know, the scene ends. Like I said, Nadia goes black. Um, she ends up waking up in back inside the orphanage. They're not outside anymore. And she just wakes up to a chorus of screams. Just, she can literally hear every single person in the orphanage screaming in agony. And this next scene is probably my favorite in the movie. Basically what happens is Nadia starts moving through the orphanage room to room. She's not able to get into any of the rooms because there's some kind of force keeping the doors closed, but she's able to look into all the rooms, either through a keyhole or a crack in the in the side or whatever. And basically what she finds is multiple rooms have people that are being tortured in different ways. First we see 
uh, Jeffrey, Eva, and Lena in a room, and basically what's happening. And folks, for those of you who were wondering about my greeting earlier for trip uh, trypophobia, uh, anybody who doesn't know what trypophobia is, that is a fear of holes in the skin or just a grouping of holes in general. And uh, the reason I brought that up is as Eva is scratching at herself in the room where, you know, the three of them are being tortured, we see her back suddenly form holes like they appear out of nowhere. And out of all the holes, yep, insects start crawling out of the fucking holes and they're just crawling all over her, torturing her. Then we see Jeffrey who's in the room, um, we can see that, again, a supernatural force is kind of controlling his limbs and making him do stuff. But he's fighting it really hard. You know, he's not hockey, a little 10-year-old kid. He's a full-grown adult, so he's able to fight it a little bit more. Unfortunately, the force just will not give up, and we actually see his right arm start to get rolled backwards. First, the fingers roll back. Then the wrist rolls back. It's literally like a roll of toothpaste being rolled up, but in but in the wrong direction, you know, upwards instead of downwards. Epic scene. Just just it looks torturous as all hell. Okay, so Nadia uh, stops. Uh, let's see. Nadia stops looking into that room and she goes to another room where she finds uh, the two adult orphans who now work there and the two young orphans who are still staying there. They are being tortured with hot water. Basically, the room that they're in, it's raining. They're indoors, but it's obviously raining, supernatural rain, but it's boiling hot water. And you can see their skin flaking and boiling and you know, turning red and just flaking off, like chunks of their skin are flaking off. But they're being held down once again by this invisible force. So none of them can move. They're all just stuck there on their knees being pelted with boiling hot water. Just It looks painful as all hell. Uh, Nadia, you know, continues throughout the house. I mean, this is literally like a house of horror at this point. She gets to another room where she finds her two older children, Dina and Sandy. They are floating above the floor, just like in a a straight position, like a stiff as a board type position, but facing down towards the floor. And they're both just puking massive amounts of blood and, you know, some bits of flesh are in the blood and everything else. And I'm talking just continuously, like puking up way more blood than you can possibly find in a single human body. And they're just both crying and just, uh, just looks torturous. Um, And again, you know, mom is looking at this from outside the door, not able to get in. She is just screaming at the top of her lungs screaming for the witch to stop you know why do you why are you doing this to me blah 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 just an incredibly torturous scene uh she ends up leaving her children uh to find another room and she finally finds a room that's open the door is open and inside that room we find uh hanif uh on his knees we find uh mr bandy uh, strapped to a chair with the sickle buried in his chest, like somebody stabbed the shit out of him with the sickle. So it's still just firmly dug into his chest. And we see hockey on the ground still bleeding from his air rifle wounds earlier. Um, 
like I said, Nadia comes into the room, tries to get Hanif to get up. But of course, like I said, there's a force that's holding him down. And suddenly the witch appears. She walks into the room and we finally get a look at her face. Now, it's not anyone that we've seen in the movie, uh, so we don't recognize her. But, of course, the very first question that Nadja asks her is, who are you? And she answers, my name is Myrnie. Yes, folks, uh, Miss Mira's daughter that's been missing all these years. As it turns out, she, she found out that her mother was framed for witchcraft and that she was murdered by Mr. Bandy and the three boys. And she, uh, she says that at that time, she took up black magic. And she said, I've just dedicated my life to uh, getting this revenge against you people. And that, you know, with Mr. Bandy getting sick, everyone getting invited back to the orphanage, it just turned out to be the perfect time. So we have our reveal of who the witch is. And she basically, when when Nadia, it's very cryptic, uh, when Nadia asks her, why are you doing this to me? I have nothing to do with what happened to you. I didn't even know about it. And uh, Myrnie looks at her and says, well, that's a sin too, darling. So basically, um, she's being punished for her ignorance as well. Um, at that point, Nadia asks her, why did you kill all the kids on the bus? They're innocent. They didn't do anything. Myrnie tries to basically make it seem like it was a mercy killing. She basically says it, it, those kids are better off dead rather than being raised in this hellhole of an orphanage where the females are getting you know, sexually assaulted by a man that they trust. And yeah, that's basically what she says, um, that they're better off dead. And then she says that her ultimate goal is to create hell for all of the people involved in this. And she says that the reason that she's creating hell is that she's not 100% sure if hell actually exists. So, I mean, that's pretty fucking twisted. She's basically saying that since I'm not 100% sure hell exists, I'm going to create hell for you, and this is going to be your absolute punishment. So now we understand why Myrnie is doing what she's doing. At this point, she basically has um, uh, Mustika, who's in the room under the... It's either Mustika or Seedy. I don't remember. Do you guys remember who that was that handed Nadia the sickle? I I think it was City. Uh, you think okay, it, it probably was. So so yeah. which probably answers the question that City is not necessarily in on it, but that she was under the witch's control. Um, I think so yeah, yeah. I, I think yeah. that's what was so, going on. Because at first I was a little confused because I was like, oh, is she in cahoots? But I think exactly. it's more she's being right. Controlled. Yeah, that was my that was my thing. Yeah, I I think she was actually under the control. Exactly. And when we get to the very last scene of the movie, it kind of corroborates that story, but we're, we're a little ahead of ourselves. So, like I said, at this point, um, the witch has CD hand the sickle. She basically pulls the sickle out of Mr. Bandy very unceremoniously, just yanks it out of there. Turns out Mr. Bandy is still alive. He was just unconscious, but now he's awake. And she places the sickle in front of Nadia, right on the floor in front of her. The witch basically orders Nadia to kill her husband, Nif, uh, Hanif, or Nif to his friends, like I said. Um, she obviously refuses. She loves her husband. She has no reason to kill him. But Hanif is basically telling her, no, save our family, save our children, do what she's telling you. Basically 
telling her, kill me, go ahead and kill me if it'll save our children. They think that because Murney basically tells them that, basically says, if you kill your husband, I will allow you and your family to leave. You know, but no one actually believes she's telling the truth, but whatever. Um, uh, like I said, at this point, uh, she once again tries to attack Murney with the sickle, just like she did outside. But this time, Murney stops her just magically, just kind of halts her in her footsteps. Uh, she's frozen there, not able to move. Murney starts to kind of approach her to, you know, to do whatever it is that she's going to do to her. And suddenly, out of nowhere, Hockey stabs Murney in the back with a screwdriver. I think it was a screwdriver anyway. Um, basically stabs her in the back, which distracts the witch long enough for Nadia to grab the sickle and just fucking bury it into the witch's neck, basically pinning her against a wall. Um, you know, th this is obviously one of those half moon sickles, you know, the half circle. So she's basically now pinned against the wall. The witch turns her head, you know, like she's going to say something cryptic to her. But then, you know, Nadia continues adding force and then just rips the sickle towards her, like away from the woman. And we get one of the nicest looking decapitations I've ever seen. Not necessarily in the effect, but the way that it jumps from the real woman to the prosthetic. Like usually, you know, when you have really eagle eyes, you can see the cut, you can see the jump cut where they go from the real actress to the dummy. This one looks almost flawless because Myrna actually blinks right before her head falls off and it looks ultra realistic. I'm not sure if that was CG or not. It, it might've been practical, but with maybe a little bit of CG help to kind of clean up the edges. But yeah, absolutely love the way that looks. So like I said, uh, Nadia basically cuts Myrna's head off. Uh, her head falls off. Um, but as uh, Nadia is kind of... Well, basically what happens is at that point, City, who's still under the spell of the witch, um, attacks Nadia. Now, it doesn't really attack her like she's, you know, um, got, you know, death in her eyes. Basically just starts doing like the girly punches, you know, just kind of punching her and screaming at the same time. Why did you do that? Blah, blah, blah. At that moment, Myrnie's detached head wakes up and literally just starts... Uh, making these odd faces, you know, these real, like, nasty, ugly faces, and we see her headless body stamp up. Her headless body walks over to her head, picks up her head, and reattaches it to her fucking body, which I always love scenes like this because it's like, well, what the hell? If cutting this woman's head off isn't going to kill her, what the hell are we going to be able to do against her? Um, but luckily, Nadia is a little bit of a quick thinker, Right as Myrnie reattaches her head and it looks like she's about to continue her attack, Nadia grabs a candle off the cabinet. Uh, there's like a series of candles that are lit there. She grabs one of them, throws them at Myrnie. And Myrnie must be made of hay or something because she goes up instantly. She is lit ablaze. It's like the quickest fire I've ever seen go from nothing, go from a candle to a blazing fire instantly. So apparently witches are very flammable. That's something else we learned today. Or at uh, least our garb. Yeah, exactly. Maybe they had so much uh, visceral and blood and other uh, whatever flammable stuff. Maybe black magic in general.
Oh yeah, definitely. You know, you got you kind of got to suspend disbelief when you're dealing with black magic because it's unexplained. It's you know, it's almost cosmic. You know, it doesn't need an explanation. It doesn't matter. Not only that, but it's like she did, and it's not like she threw like a Molotov cocktail or it was like a little candle. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. That's why you question it. But you know, supernatural film, so we'll accept it. At this point, uh, Mernie is you know lit up like a fucking Christmas tree. She is completely engulfed in flame. Um, the family is able to get out of the room and, but Mr. Bandy is still alive and sitting in the chair. But like I, like we said earlier, he's old, he's feeble. He's not able to get himself out of the chair. And he actually asks Hanif for help as they're escaping the room. Hanif turns around, looks at Mr. Bandy and thinks for like maybe a second or two, and then just decides to leave him. Just walks right out of the room closes the door, Mernie's burning body falls right on top of Mr. Bandy, and now they are both in flame, just both burning to all hell. And the scene fades to black. So uh, we go to our epilogue scene, and what we see is City um, at a at a inner city school picking up hockey. So it, it seems like everybody's back to, you know, where they came from. Things seem to be back to normal. And City walks Hockey back to the car where Nadia is waiting in the driver's seat. And they start talking about how Maman is back at the house making pizza. So apparently um, the family, Hanif and Nadia, decide, fuck it. Let's just take City and uh, Maman with us. And they are now basically our housekeeper and nanny and chef and everything else. So, um, you know, obviously, because since the orphanage is pretty much out of commission now, you know, they felt bad for those two and they left. They didn't want to leave them with nothing. So it seems like they offered them jobs. Because like I said, and the cool thing, too, is, is that City's face is now showing the new damage from the boiling water torture. I thought that was a nice added little touch, um, you know, to show that the damage that they sustained was permanent, not just supernatural, that it would just go away when the witch was dispatched or whatever. So that was a cool shot. Uh, Then we see Nadia, um, everybody's in the car, everybody puts their seatbelt on, Nadia's about to pull out into the road, she looks into her side mirror, and she sees Mernie standing uh, maybe, I don't know, 20-25 feet behind the car. Uh, She exits the car instantly because it freaks her out, and Mernie's not there, Mernie has basically disappeared, so... It's up to the interpretation of the of the viewer if Mernie was actually there or if maybe this is just PTSD affecting Nadia. You know, maybe she's going to see Mernie now in various places the rest of her life. Who knows? Uh, <clears throat> and then after that, they drive away. And then we see two men um, who are driving a BMW. You know, they're both well-dressed. And it seems that they are the new owners of the orphanage. They bought the orphanage. Um they were touring the facility inside. We basically see them get back into their car and they're talking about how, you know, they need to expand the road since there's only one road leading here. They need to expand it so that people have easy access to the, to the place. What they're planning on doing with the building. I'm not sure. The only thing that they mention is that they want to have it ready by new year's Eve. And then they both kind of elbow each other and chuckle. So I don't know if they're, you know, going to have a party, going to have a seance, whatever the fuck they're they're doing. They're obviously planning something for New Year's Eve. They end up pulling away 
and the camera starts slowly approaching the front door of the orphanage. And the last thing that we hear is Miss Mira's footsteps, the the very distinct, you know, cracking bones, you know, as she touches the floor, footsteps and fade to black into the credits. And that is the Queen of Black Magic 20, well, 2019 for Indonesia, 2021 for us. Uh, the other cool thing I wanted to mention is during the closing credits, uh, it looked like we were looking at, and Don might be able to uh, verify this, but it seems like we were looking at scenes from other either Jacques Noir, or, uh, either Joko Arnoir films or potentially Chemo films. Did you recognize those scenes, Donnie? Yeah, there was a few. Um, I believe that's uh, Chemo's work. Okay, that makes more sense. Because I was yeah. looking for stuff from like Satan's Slaves or Impetigor, but I didn't recognize anything. So that's yeah. what I was thinking. That's what I'm saying. I'm not. Fam- I I know Kimo's work more with uh, work as the Mo Brothers, not his solo stuff. Right. So yeah, I some of that looked familiar enough that I would say it's Kimo's work. There you go. So yeah, there is our film. Quite the little adventure that it was. As we've already said, great effects. You know, great characterization. Good storytelling. Not the most original story ever, but just original enough that it feels fresh. Um, you know, I mean, there's not really much else I can say that we haven't already said. Great score, good effects. You know, not a lot of on-screen death, but definitely a lot of on-screen damage. Like, these people go through a hell of a lot. And even though I'm convinced Lena and uh, Ava could not have possibly survived all the injuries that they went through... We don't actually see them die, so, of course, it's up for interpretation. Like I said, we do see Ava smash her head into the windshield until her skull cracks open, so we can make that Mm -hmm. assumption. Lena, I don't think we ever see. The last time we see Lena is after Jeffrey carries her back into the house after she was eating caterpillars. So, again, you could probably make the assumption they didn't make it. So, ultimately, this movie only has, what, like a four or five? Well, Not counting the kids on the bus, probably only has like a four or five body count, right? A couple of adults. uh, I'm not sure. We we never actually see what happens to Mystica, do we? She just kind of disappears. The little girl who got hit by the car, like she comes back and relays the story about what happened on the bus. But I don't think we see her again after that, right? Or am I wrong? At least I don't remember. Yeah, I, I... Thinking about it now, I don't remember. I don't think so. So who knows? (laughs) But yeah, regardless, doesn't take away from the movie. It's a fun movie. Well worth watching. Obviously, if you can handle subtitles, I highly recommend this film. Um, That that whole beheading scene and then the beheaded head uh, starts talking on there. I mean, that was just so creepy and well done. Like I said, that was probably the nicest jump cut I've ever seen. I, like I said, I'm not sure if they did that with CG. It, potentially they could have. But the fact that she literally cuts her head off and Mernie's eyes blink as her head is falling off the body, it just, ah, such a nice little touch. It's the simple things that make movies like this so stellar. And yeah, that's just one of many. So yeah, awesome, awesome effect. Hell yes. Whew, that was fun. 
Yes. I'm all excited. Like my heart's racing, man. I I, I think I like this movie more than I gave it credit for. <laughs> I mean, I'm probably gonna watch this one more time this week just to give it like a final score because obviously we don't rate our movies here, but obviously for our end of the year lists, I do a personal rating. So, I um, mean, it's already pretty high for this, but it may go up on subsequent rewatches. This this movie's just so good, and every time I've watched it, I've noticed new things too. Different pictures on the wall. Um, different pictures from the the pile of pictures that they pull out of the trinket box. Like you see more and more of them the more you watch the movie. It's just it's one of those movies that's going to have a lot of rewatchability. You know, even though we know how it ends, it's still a fun ride, and you know, no reason that it wouldn't still be great on rewatch. Yeah, it's part of the reason. Like with movies like this, um, a lot of times, uh, sometimes with foreign movies, like I said, they're. There can be some loss in translation issues the first time you watch it, especially with characters. You might confuse, like, if they're referring to a certain character, and then it might mess with your head as far as the story goes. So I think this one was, for the most part, this one was straightforward compared to some others. So I didn't, I, I wasn't confused by much, but there are, like, little details just at certain points where, like, oh, like, they might call out this character and i'm thinking okay was it this person or this person stuff like that on a second watch it'll shore that kind of stuff up right right away and easily so i am looking forward to seeing this one again yeah like i said three watches down it got better with every watch no reason that you know i i I can't imagine this won't be a top 10 contender by the end of the year obviously we'll see how the year pans out who knows if movie theaters in Southern California and Northern California for Mike, if they reopen, who knows, you know, how that might change the landscape of horror in 2021. But um, this movie is just, it's so much fun. I, I can almost not say anything negative about it. In fact, I don't remember saying anything negative about it. I mean, cause obviously it's a supernatural movie, so there's going to be plot holes here and there, but of course you got to suspend disbelief when you're talking about black magic, dark magic, whatever you want to go with. Um, you know, a lot of it is going to be unexplained, ambiguous, and that's okay sometimes. And in this case, it's very okay. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't, you know, I, I heard one reviewer say that they would have liked to have seen more of Mernie potentially maybe like have her relay a story of how she learned the magic, how mm-hmm. she learned black magic, shit like that. But the more I think about it, it's not really going to add anything to the story. You know, Mernie's not a protagonist. She's an antagonist. So I don't really need to know more about her motivation other than uh, her mother was framed Revenge. and murdered mm-hmm. for something she didn't do. That's all yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, when it comes to a scorned character, they're going to do what it takes to get revenge in their eyes. So if it was learning black magic, she took the steps to do it. There you go. And since black magic's already kind of suggested in the movie, um, it's like, it's not a stretch that she would kind of follow that path. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what I mean. I, you know, I, I disagreed with that podcast, right? I didn't really think I needed more of Mernie's backstory. We got enough, you know, we got the bare bones. We got what we needed. We, we understand her motivation. We understand her anger. Um, and we understand why she decided to do it now because with Mr. Bandy on his deathbed, this is going to be her last chance to get revenge against literally everyone involved. So it totally, you know, timing makes sense, everything. So, yeah, 
Not many plot holes here, but, you know, ultimately every Supernatural movie is going to have maybe a little hole here and there. But, you know, when a movie's this good, you accept it. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, Queen of Black Magic in the books, as is another episode of Fresh Cuts. But let's find out if we all have anything for people to listen to since our last episode. Venom, um, do you have anything? Um, last episode, I mentioned that in the Mike of Madness recorded our Kostansky episode where we looked at the void and psycho Goreman. Uh, that episode is finally out. It was just dropped today. So as you listen to this show, our latest episode of that is out. Um, that is on the prescribed films network. And that is of course in the Mike of Madness with Rebecca Reinhardt and Brad Thornton. Look for that. Um, on It's Not Horror Okay, we still have our last episode where we looked at, um, what did we look at? Was that Ruckus? We do, we do that show so often that I tend to forget what our latest episode was. So I think our last episode was 1980s Ruckus. Our next, oh no, no, I'm sorry. Our last episode was Orgasmo. It was Scott's pick, Orgasmo. And then uh, this later this week, we're going to be looking at Heavy Metal. Uh, the animated classic, um, and we're going to be doing a commentary on that. Look out for that on the same network that we're on, the Dark Discussions Podcast Network. And then everything else, nothing really new. Underwater Kaiju, still looking for a convenient date for us to record our next episode. Um, and then the main show, No More Room in Hell, we were planning on recording this past weekend, but something came up with one of the hosts, uh, so we are now planning, hopefully, if all goes well, we're going to record Saturday because, of course, the big game is on Sunday. And, yes, I'll be one of those cliche American males that does nothing on Super Bowl Sunday other than drink beer and eat chicken wings. So no podcasting on Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, and that's pretty much it from from me, Mike. Holy crap, it's Sunday? <laughs> yep. Yeah, um, yeah. There was no there was no game this past week. Yep, it was we, you know the week off. Oh well, no, I'm, no, I'm I'm just I'm trying to make a joke about how out of the loop I am with the sports world. Oh right, no. you're the sports you're the non sports <laughs> guy. That's it. You're like, what time do we record Sunday, guys? <laughs> oh man. Well, Donnie will be recording anyway. Maybe not us. <laughs> um, as far as I oh I'm sorry, Don. Did you have something? I wasn't sure. Uh, yeah, um, well, um, last episode I mentioned um, I was guessing on Attack of the Killer podcast. Well, nice. that got pushed back a little just because one of the hosts' oh. uh, technical difficulties. Mm. Uh, go figure, I'm the one with the good internet connection. <laughs> wow. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I was the one with a good internet connection and one of the hosts wasn't, so go figure. Um, that is actually going to be recorded... Uh, uh, tomorrow night, the night we record this, um, it should have already been it should have already been recorded. Um, for those that don't remember, uh, the picks were going to be Pan's Labyrinth, Ghosts of War, and Overlord for a uh, triple bill of World War II horror films. So uh, look forward to that one. Um, in case you didn't know, those are all first time watches. Wow. Yeah, um, really looking forward to that one. Uh, should be a fun time i love with those love talking with those guys so uh yeah looking forward to that um as venom said underwater kaiju is still just waiting around 
on for us to get our schedules and alignments. So um, that was Gamera versus Barugon, right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I think that was the last one we agreed. Up- that was, I think, that was the last one we agreed upon doing. So, yeah, yeah, um, yeah that should be uh, uh, sometime within the next month month or so um again don't hold me to that you know we're still waiting for our schedules to clear for that mm-hmm. i'm free sunday hint. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah other than that um uh, hopefully attack of the killer podcast will be recorded soon so um other than that check me out here on uh fresh cuts cool um as far as i go i I think I mentioned it last episode, but I did end up doing the episode of Cinema Beef with Gary and Suzanne, my uh, Burning for Springwood co-host as well. We did The Mechanic and The Professional. Um, For anyone who's familiar with those movies, uh, kind of had the Hitman theme going on there. Mm -hmm. And other than that, the rescheduled No More Room in Hell coming up. And then it looks like I'll mention it again that we're headed towards Lean Warriors returning starting in February. So pretty excited about that. It's been a long time. And yeah, I haven't really, as far as podcasts go, I haven't really talked about non-horror movies in a long time. So I'm I'm looking forward to it. Although I think, uh, I think what? Well, weren't you, you were on a Christmas, weren't you on a cut to the chase recently? No, he did one of the commentaries with them. Oh, that's what it was. Okay. Yeah. Um, but that's yeah, that's pretty much all I got other than, you know, keep pumping out Fresh Cuts episodes every week. Speaking of which, coming up, I don't know. We got some – they're starting to roll in now. We're starting to be able to go yeah. into each week with choices. So um, I don't even know what we have i we probably don't even have anything set for next week yet um but i've got uh, some things in mind um the i mentioned i'm not sure if it was on air before we started but there's a movie called the night uh which is an indian uh horror film that was just released that looks mildly interesting and then we still got the hunted on shutter that we never did we can still do yeah. Mm-hmm. There's another one called La Casa that I'm trying to track down. Yeah, that's um, right. I'm hearing good things about La Casa too. Yeah. We, yeah, we yeah. got options. Yeah. We, so we'll figure it out, and we'll be back in a week with another episode. But but uh, until then, I think it's time to get out. I don't know if uh, the microphone has been picking up for our listeners' delight, but my stomach has been like this last like 10, 15 minutes. My stomach's been growling, <laughs> and I'm like, and every time it does it, I'm like, oh man, our dawn and then I'm like, what the hell noise is that? But, <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm ready to get out of here. I go get some dinner. So what do you guys say? We uh, say goodnight to the listeners. No centipedes. Oh God. <laughs> no, not- Yes. <laughs> Avoid bugs and hail Satan. Later. Adios, bro.